Welcome to the Chaplin America Story Hour. Joining us is Stephen Vale, who among many other things is a writer, a storyteller, a veteran of the United States Air Force Chaplin Services, an ordained rabbi, a film buff, and a proud and patriotic American. As you might have guessed by now, our friend Steve wears many hats, and every episode he's going to juggle a few of them and take us on a journey traversing through a wide range of topics that will gravitate towards his interest. You are also joined by me, Rudra, an artist and a fellow explorer just like you. And with that, I introduce to you our figurative hat juggler, Steve. Thank you, Rudra. Uh, yeah, let me add one more thing that I'd like to also make sure we always underline. I am a storyteller. Uh, probably equal to my being a patriotic American is I am a storyteller. I have been for many years and comes in different forms, but this podcast is the newest form of that. So thank you for all that. I'm really enjoying this little journey, but right now while Rudra and I are recording this, it's just about Christmas time here in America. Nobody's going to be listening to this at the time it's happening, but Merry Christmas, I say, for me and anyone who's listening, my cat. Uh, I love Christmas. It's my third favorite American holiday. It's a national holiday here in America, um, and it's also Hanukkah, which is the Jewish festival of lights, and the last candle will be on Christmas Day. So uh, we light eight candles, one for each night. Uh, one of the things I'd like to bring in here while I'm bringing this up is that uh, this is this idea of bringing light into um, darkness goes back probably since the dawn of humanity. As the, as the light starts to go out, people bring light in probably originally maybe they thought it would never come back or even if they thought it would come back maybe they had this these fears that so the light would maybe remind the sun almost like what they call sympathetic magic in certain traditions that to remind the light to come back but whatever the original meaning was now we give it new meaning and though that new meaning itself is a kind of light people bring light into darkness and there's an old saying that it's better to uh, light a single candle than to curse the darkness. I forget where that comes from. Might be from Proverbs. But in any case, it's also true with art. A lot of times I learned this, even though I'm not a graphic artist, unlike my friend Rudra, I learned many years ago that it's an interesting artistic principle that if you have a painting, a very dark painting, let's say a painting of night or a painting of a dark room, but you put one candle in that painting, the eye goes to that light, which is very similar to this understanding of bringing light into the solstice, into the darkest time of the year, into the longest night and the shortest day. So last week we we left off. We were talk. We've been talking about story. Uh, this the theme of this podcast, at least for now, has a lot to do with the whole idea of the story with a capital S. And what that means, and what is it? Why do we need it? What's the whole point of it? What it's, what's its relationship between between that and other things that we just enjoy, like movies and television shows, books, and um, humans need the story. The sto story is a human need. I think it's as important as almost everything else that we live on. 
not as important as food perhaps, but pretty close. I don't think you could have human culture and society. You could have an individual human being, maybe even families, but without story, I don't think you could keep that human connections going over bigger geography and bigger groups, groupings. And does it have a deeper meaning? Are there things that are go beyond its particular medium that the story is being told in? And we've been talking about that for a number of episodes. The, the, ep, the name of this podcast is the Chaplin America Story Hour. I like that for a lot of reasons. I especially like it because the whole idea of the story hour goes all the way back to radio and, and, and tell early television when you'd have a so-and-so story hour. Captain Kangaroo's Story Hour. I used to watch a children's show way before Sesame Street called Captain Kangaroo was one of my favorite. They had stories and cartoons and puppets and all kinds of things. So story. We've been talking about story. We've been talking about the Joseph Campbell idea of the monomyth, this kind of spiritual background to story and where it comes from in the human consciousness somewhat uh, borrowed and inspired by Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, and his understanding of these these kind of um, cultural cultural pillars for where story comes from, that is probably something hardwired, or at least is speculated that it's hardwired into human consciousness. It takes different forms, and in those forms there are variations, some of which are, I'm not trying to trivialize whether Joseph Campbell does or not. There is arguments against Joseph Campbell from many scholars that he trivializes the differences between these stories, the between these myths. Whether that's true or not, it is absolutely inarguable that there are differences that come up specifically because of particular cultures. And this is natural. If you live in a very, very hot climate where it's sunny all year long and you don't have a lot of snow, snow is probably not going to enter in as big into the myth as it will be in a, in a culture like, let's say, Alaska or Iceland or Greenland. And that's just natural. That's just the reality. So, and those variations sometimes do change the meaning of the story. It's not merely a setting. It can change the feeling. What, what, what is snow, right? What, how does it affect people? The fact that it melts, that it's this big white covering and, and covers the earth. What does that mean for those people who tell stories about snow? Same thing when, it talk, when you're talking about sun, a place where the sun is shining all year long or most of the year, or where, let's say, a place where rain is rare, but it's, you know, obviously rain is important everywhere, that's going to change the story. And so I think it's important to give Joseph Campbell his due, but also to say that he sometimes glosses over the, di the difference of culture. I had a class in comparative religion when I was still in undergraduate in seminary. Uh, this was, I had come back to school in my 30s, to, to try to become a, a rabbi. And it took me 10 years. It, it was from when I was 30 till I was, I was ordained at 40. And during the undergraduate program, which was this kind of liberal arts program, which is almost gone now the way it was in almost all, at least American culture, unfortunately, because it was a really great program, they, made, they had us required to take a class in what was called um, comparative religion. And that class would 
alternate between a class in Islam and a class in Hinduism. We would change from semester to semester, at least at that time. And when I took it, it was taught by a, a man who was a professor at UCLA, Case Bowley, who was the head of the religion, comparative religion department. He taught a class in Hinduism for the semester. And he said he was Lutheran. And he, when he studied this and he had gone to India to study Hinduism, he had a revelation, which is there's really no such thing as comparative religion. You can't really compare religions because each one is its own world. And, and while the, you, you, you can compare it, but you, the idea that it's, it's a one-to-one -one comparison is not really true. He said the only way you can really understand a religion is from within it. And that's not always possible or even desirable. People want to stay with their own faith, their own tradition, absolutely. And there's good reasons for that. Obviously, people argue what is the relative truth of the traditions. And this is, but this is partly where story comes in. Because I think what Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung was do, were doing, and more people have done it before them and since, is that there, there seems to be a kind of core to all storytelling traditions, whether there's sacredness or, or holiness that, that is lifted up in those particular cultures or not. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was the fairy tale. I'm actually writing one right now for my niece. Hi, Samantha. Um, and hopefully I'll finish it by the end of January. But the idea of a fairy tale, a fairy tale, that's one thing they're called. But there are other connections to fairy tales, other, you could call them genres, or at least subgenres, which are very specific to what their purpose is. For example, the fable. The fable in, in Hebrew, it's called a mashal. In English, it's sometimes called a parable. A parable is a fairy tale. I'm using that in air quotes. But it has a moral to it. There's a reason why you're telling it. If you're telling the story of the tortoise and the hare, Aesop fable. Aesop was famous for this. Aesop created these parables, which is what the word fable and parable come from the same roots this idea of a story that has a moral at the end, a reason why you're telling it that's specific to the ending of the story. It's not so much about the characters or the entertainment value, although that is important. It's more about what are you going to take away from this? That slow and steady wins the race. A, 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 a hare and a tortoise have a race. The hare is obviously faster but the tortoise wins because the hare, because he's so arrogant and he's so full of himself, he says, oh, I can take a rest, and he falls asleep. And the tortoise, meanwhile, just keeps going, doesn't stop. Slow and steady wins the race. That's how I learned the, the parable, the fable, when I was a kid. Um, there's very many like those, the fox and the grapes, a classic Aesop fable. One of the reasons Aesop did those, at least according to historic legend, is because some of these were possibly political. Possibly they had meanings that were not politically correct unless you disguised them with animals. If you told it about whoever the Aesop was, I believe, Greek, so I think it's before Roman. So if you were telling it about the Greek emperor or king, you could get killed. And it's according to at least some historic 
legend. We don't really have all this. I think Aesop was killed. At least there are some versions of that. I forget exactly what we know about Aesop, how much we know about him, but that he might have been killed for his storytelling. So a parable, a fable, is one way to uh, both disguise other meanings as well as to get the listener into the meaning in a way they might not if you preached a sermon. Hey, Rudra, I'm your friend or your teacher or your parent, and you should just take your time. Slow and steady wins the race. Don't try to rush all your work. Try to take your time with it. That's not as interesting as telling a story about a hare and a tortoise, which is more entertaining. It, it connects to the right brain, and so you have a different experience with learning the lesson. This is why they, this is what fables are. Not all fairy tales are fables. Some fairy tales are just for other meanings, some of which may not just be amoral, but may have other deeper meanings, sometimes spiritual meanings, sometimes hidden meanings. Sometimes it's trivialized partially because of Disney, and Disney was the really the first big, huge media company other than the Grimm brothers, to really sensationalize and popularize across cultures the fairy tale. The Grimm brothers, the Grimm fairy tales, they, they did that a lot. The Grimm brothers collected, they were folk archivists, collecting these tales from various European cultures and then writing them down and sometimes making them kind of a form that would be the, became the standardized form. One of the classic ones that Disney borrowed is Cinderella. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella are two, I believe, Grimm's fairy tales that Disney borrowed. Or Alice in Wonderland, right? That was written by Lewis Carroll. He wrote that story. He created that story because they were public domain. They, it wasn't stealing. And this goes back to this idea of public domain versus copy art, trademark, or um, patent, right? This whole idea of when does an idea become open to everyone or is it something that is owned by the pro the intellectual property holder uh the rights holder and and huge argument right now going on culturally in the cultural zeitgeist about lord of the rings because of this series rings of power i'm not going to get deep into it in this particular episode but we may cover it in a future episode about what it did they do something wrong when they did Rings of Power without being true to the Tolkien stories or the Tolkien tradition? Or is that just another way to pick up a storytelling thing and continue it? I tend to gravitate to the first one because Tolkien, it's not yet folk. It's not completely public domain. His sons owned the rights to it. His son Simon is the one, I think, who sold it to Amazon. The son Christopher, may he rest in peace, who's gone, he, wasn't, he wouldn't have been so on board with the, Lord, the Amazon Rings of Power. And, and they're kind of not honoring the, what even he did, let alone what his father, J.R.R., did. There, and there's a whole other discussion that we can have and would definitely relates to this discussion about how, how sacred should the public domain be versus copyright. And one of my favorite YouTubers, he's also on Rumble, he's also on many other platforms, his name is Razorfist. He has a channel called the Rageaholic, 
on YouTube. He's really great. He's a very brilliant scholar on film noir and, and tough guy cinema, as well as a political commentator. He's also a big gamer. He's a, he's kind of a metalhead. He's got long hair and he, he has a persona. He uses very, very crass language throughout all of his things, but I love him. He's very funny. And he does also, um, episodes about, um, the shadow and comic books. He's also a huge comic book fan and he's done a lot Anyway, one of the things he did, one of his rants that he did was all about the idea of the public domain being better or more important than copyright. That therefore the artist, the writer, the people who have this, they lose their intellectual property just because time went by. I used to be on the other side of this. I used to think it's too bad that the public domain doesn't have more things in it that that it because of companies like Disney the public domain has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. It's very difficult. It takes almost a hundred years to get things into the public domain, if not more. And I used to be on the side of, wow, that's too bad because the public domain is a way that we dip into the pool, this well. You and I talked about this offline, having to do with a couple of movies that we were talking about, prison movies. The, 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 The well of storytelling, this, this kind of pool that you dip into. And the public domain to be fair to that side, the side I used to be on, is an important way for artists of all kinds to dip in to to that well, to try to get have access to it without having to pay money or get put in jail or, you know, whatever for breaking the law. And that would Benjamin Franklin, who basically invented the copyright, the the patent and the copyright in, in America, you know, he he didn't have this idea that the artist would have it forever. He had a limited thing, which I forgot what it was. Let's say it was 25 years or 50 years. Now it's become almost indefinite where a, a copyright holder, it's almost impossible for a copyright to go into the public domain within the lifetime of the people who are talking about it now. Maybe in grand, great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren. Maybe they'll see it in the public domain, but maybe. But maybe it won't be because maybe the lawyers will keep it going for the property of Disney or whoever owns it. And this is, you know, a problem. However, I am now more on the side of what Razorfist was saying because I think that intellectual property is like property. And when a person has worked very hard to have that property, not only should they have it, but their children and their family should have it when they're gone. And I used to be more on the other side, that it shouldn't be extended past the person's lifetime, which it was the original rule of public domain. That's not true anymore, at least in American uh, copyright law. So, but, so I don't remember how Disney works this with their movies. I forget if they, once they make a movie, now they have a copyright on it. I don't think that's correct because many, for example, many people have made Cinderella. Disney made their Cinderella, which is probably the most famous one, but lots of cheap companies also made Cinderella stories. There was a Rodgers and Hammerstein, very famous musical duo who did lots of great musicals on Broadway. They did a Cinderella, which most people don't know because it hadn't been revived for a long time. I saw it as a television production. I think that was how it first came out. It was a live television production when I was a little kid. Got some great songs. Got some amazing songs, which I won't sing because of copyright. So, um, so Cinderella, very famous grim fairy tale. What's another one? Oh! 
Hansel and Gretel, one of the most famous of the Grimm fairy tales. That story was out there already. The Grimm brothers didn't make it up or write it like the guy who wrote Pinocchio. There's a new movie out by Guillermo del Toro on Pinocchio. Pinocchio was a, not a Grimm's fairy tale. It was actually written by an Italian author whose name now slips my mind, but he wrote the book Pinocchio, which, by the way, is even though it's not a Grimm's fairy tale, it's pretty grim. <laughs> it is not like the Disney cartoon. It is not like the Disney cartoon. It's probably closer. I've not yet seen Guillermo del Toro's. I, I do want to see it because I'm a huge fan of him. Uh, it's, I, I think it's on Netflix, though, so I'm going to have trouble. I'm going to have to figure out a way to watch it. Uh, but, but um, and I don't, because I don't have Netflix, and that's a whole other discussion. But Pinocchio is, is a dick. He is a terrible puppet child, call him what you will. He kills the cricket. In, in the, in, he steps on it early in the book. There is no Jiminy Cricket in the original Pinocchio book by this Italian author. Because that cricket who's trying to be his conscience early in the book, he steps on it and kills it. I think there's another cricket later on in the story. It says, remember that cricket that you killed? I think that was my cousin or something. I don't remember, but it's been a long time since I read the book Pinocchio. But I read it as a kid. Very different than the cartoon, which I loved. I loved the Disney cartoon. It was my favorite Disney movie for many, many years. Probably still is pretty close up there. Love the music, love the story, love the voice acting, everything. Uh, so Pinocchio is a fairy tale, but a fairy tale written by an author, not one that was originally in the public domain, although it is now. That author has been dead for many, many years. Wizard of Oz by Frank L. Baum. That's a kind of seen as a fairy tale, but not a folk tale. It's not something that came out of the the collective unconscious as much, although there are many ideas in it that did, that Frank L. Baum wrote it, had a copyright on it for many, many years. I think most of those are now in the public domain. By the way, people need to read the other Oz books. There are dozens of them. The Wizard of Oz is only the first book, but it's a whole series. It's, it's not perhaps as um, mythic fantasy like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, but it has a huge mythology that The Wizard of Oz only touches on. Fra Frank L. Baum himself wrote a whole bunch of books bef before he died, and then other authors took it over. There's even a comic book series. There's a very, really good comic book. The different companies have done it. Marvel did it for a while, uh, and then there were other companies that did it. But the, the Oz mythology is incredible. It's amazing, and again, not all for children the same way that people think of it. Even the movie, the Wizard, original Wizard of Oz, has some darkness to it. The, the, those monkeys, the flying monkeys, scared the crap out of me when I was a when I was a kid. And and then also the Wicked Witch's uh, guards that would go ooh oh ooh ee oh. Oh, they had this chant that they did, scared me as they walked around guarding her castle. Um, so the Oz books, though, there's a whole bunch of characters that nobody knows about. There's a really good Oz sequel called Return to Oz that was done by um, Walter, I think his name was Murch, M-U-R-C-H. He was an editor. He only directed this one movie, which is a shame because it's a really good movie. It bombed at the box office. It's a favorite of Spielberg's, favorite of George Lucas. I think George Lucas helped produce it. Uh, but it's really good movie, and it's very dark. And it does come to some extent from the book where Dorothy, I believe, is in a mental hospital. 
and she's still having these fantasies, or are they, about the wizard and the scarecrow and the tin man, and they're trying to give her, I think, electric shock treatments it's before lobotomies, and she then goes back to Oz. At least that's how the movie was, and I believe it was based on one of his books. They're really good. Anyway, story, maybe more than anything else except for perhaps music, is something that is ultimately in the public domain. Even though there may be in really good copyright holding and, and ways of protecting, if you, if you write a story, you're an author, you write a story, ultimately over human history, story becomes something that's it's like radio. It's in the airwaves. It's something that, that gets out there and people then do things with it. How many times have you told a story of a movie that you saw? You're the storyteller now. You're not charging anybody for it, but you're telling the story of this movie you went to see and you liked it, so you're telling a friend about the story. And, and you become the storyteller of that movie. That's an important part of the storytelling tradition. And, and it's a different version. It's a different way. It's a different setting. It's a different time frame. The movie took two hours. Your version takes five minutes. Is it better? Not necessarily. The, 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 the journey of the story is very powerful. Somebody who's a really proficient storyteller might take a half hour to tell a two-hour movie. And in so doing, may come up with a very entertaining thing. I've done a lot of movies storytelling when I talk about movies with people. Again, I don't charge for it. I wouldn't make it a product. But if I'm talking about, let's say, once Bullet Train, right, which is a movie you and I both recently yeah. saw, you know, I'm, I, I could tell that story and really enjoy telling it and hopefully get people engaged, maybe engaged enough to even see the movie, whether I do spoilers or whether I don't do spoilers. And there's do two different ways to tell the story of a movie, with spoilers, without spoilers. Reviewers on YouTube or other places will do two versions sometimes. They'll do a, a review without spoilers. Then on Saturday, <laughs> the, on the weekend, they'll do a longer version with the spoilers. And they'll give warning, this is for people who've already seen the movie or you don't care about seeing the movie. I'll watch both. Sometimes there's movies I don't want to see, so I don't care about this, but I want to hear my favorite storytellers tell the story, for example, of Avatar 2, The Way of Water. I am not interested in seeing that movie. I'm never going to see it. I never saw the first one, and that's a whole other discussion. So I watched a lot of YouTube videos. One of my favorite storytellers on YouTube is The Critical Drinker. His real name is Will Jordan. He writes novels, uh, uh, spy novels, and uh espionage thrillers but he's also I first knew him from YouTube and he's a great storyteller so I watch his reviews whether they're good reviews or bad reviews of movies that I don't want to see or aren't planning on seeing including his spoilers he'll usually do like a 19 minute review with very funny he, he pretends he's like he's a little bit drunk I don't know if he really is I don't think is it's a persona and I, lo I love his storytelling he for me he's I listen to him as a storyteller of Avatar 2 it's not merely I want to hear him trash Avatar 2, although that's fun too. <laughs> and actually, he gave a very fair review to Avatar 2. He said it's got strengths and weaknesses. It's got Cameron's both strengths and weaknesses. So he was very fair. He did not do a complete rip of, of Avatar 2, nor did he do a complete rave about it. You know, it was neither a rant nor a rave. It was a little both. But I loved it. And I, don't, I, I have now even less reason to see Avatar 2 because it's everything I thought it was going to be and less. <laughs> and so now I got Avatar 2 and I could watch other people do it also. And I probably will. 
And I do that a lot with the Marvel movies now. I'm not interested in Marvel anymore. I was until Endgame. I checked out after Endgame. Now what I do to check into Marvel is to watch other people's reviews of it. Their storytelling version of whatever it is, whether they liked it or they didn't. I watch both. I'll watch a, a rave and I'll watch a rant of Wanda and the Scarlet, uh, Wanda and Vision. WandaVision, right, or one of those Disney shows, or the latest Doctor Strange, which I'm not going to see, never going to see, I'm not interested in seeing it, but I'll listen to a long review of it where they give the spoils and they tell the story. This is the storytelling tradition. And there's always going to be this tension between the intellectual rights or the canon, whether written down or in a movie form, and the storyteller. So, uh, you know, uh, when people tell the story, they put their own spin on it. But when you write it down, once it's written, does that become it? You know, if someone hears it, they're like, oh, wait, that's not the right story. So this question that you're asking about, if something gets written down, does that start to uh, codify what before was a much more fluid tradition? And yeah. in, my, in, in my tradition, in the Jewish tradition, the Talmud, the, the oral, what is called the oral tradition, it's not scripture. The scripture is the Bible, what we call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Christians call it the Old Testament. We don't call it that, but I honor, I honor both sides of that discussion because I, I, I really love Christianity, even though I'm not a Christian. There's a lot of value I get out of Christianity, partially because of America. Another time, for, we'll talk about that. But when the Mishnah, which is the, the, the little kind of legal code that often becomes the little seeds of what becomes these big Talmudic discussions, these discussions that go on for pages and pages and pages. When the Mish even the Mishnah got written down, there were a number of ancient rabbis who said, no, no, we shouldn't write this down. It has to be memorized. It has to only be memorized. It should not be written down. And part of the reason why was because they were afraid that the interpretation would become codified in a way that it wasn't meant to do. This is, again, these are arguments that come up within the tradition, outside the tradition, among academics, but it, it, it impacts your question. If you write down a version of Cinderella, or you, you do a movie, Disney's version of Cinderella, and then somebody else wants to tell a different version, maybe even the original version from the Grimm Brothers, or an older version before the Grimm Brothers, does, is that now, oh, that's not Cinderella? Oh, Snow White is a better example. Snow White is not originally called Snow White. It was Snow, it was Snow White and Rose Red. There were two main characters in that story. And, and Rose Red isn't in the Snow White Disney movie, which was the first animated Disney full-length film. So many people, when they hear the, Snow, the, the older version of Snow White, they wait a minute, that's not Snow White. The Disney version is Snow White. That's the Snow White I grew up with. And there's a problem that with that. I love those Disney movies. I grew up with them. But I, since, in the last 40, 50 years, I've come to realize the storytelling tradition is much richer than any one particular medium or version of this. goes back to our discussion about um, this kind of yin-yang, very delicate balance between what's in the public domain and what is copyrighted. This, it is the same, it's, it's, it impacts the same question you're asking of a written version, let's call it canon, for lack of a better word, right. and a telling tradition. And this, there's good arguments to be made both ways about which is, you know, what 
affects which is better, which is worse. There's, there's strengths and weaknesses in that. The, the strength of that is, okay, now we have a published version of these fairy tales that people can share across cultures and can be written, read by people, read by parents to their kids. They don't have to memorize the story. Partly the downside of having it written out and becoming canonized is that people then, unless they were good readers, and it's different if you're making something up or you're improvising it, Let's say I'm telling the story, for example, of the three bears, Goldilocks and the three bears, classic fairy tale story, right? If, if most parents didn't read that story, at least when I was a kid, most parents had memorized it already. They read other stories to us, Dr. Seuss, Cat in the Hat, various stories, the Berenstein, Berenstein Bears, which was also written by Dr. Seuss, but not illustrated by him. You know, they would read those. But things like, like, um, Goldilocks or uh, the, the uh, uh, Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, parents knew that story. Their parents had told them that. And so even though those stories had become written down and became part of the collection of Grimm's fairy tales, etc., most people already knew them. They were part of the collective unconscious. And so people could just tell them. And it's easier sometimes to do that than to read expressively. That's a big strength, but there's a weakness in it too. And the weakness is part of the, the, part of the power of storytelling is how you tell it. A good reader might be able to add a lot of nuance and flavor and voice to this. Reading expressively is its own art form. It's, there, there, there are nuances to this even within the acting world. I love, I'm a huge lover of old time radio, the radio that is, doesn't barely, barely exists anymore in America. Still very big in the UK. They have, BBC has brand new, full production radio dramas and comedies and everything, fantasy. They do this every year, like all day long. Oh, I forget which BBC station has it, but they have soap opera, they have children's stuff, they have comedy, they have westerns, everything. The BBC is famous for doing an entire full cast production of Lord of the Rings before Peter Jackson's movie came out and things like that. Star Wars too. I have on CD, I have the entire audio production of Star Wars after the movie came out and, and I think Mark Hamill is in that but almost everybody else are different actors. I think very few other people are from the actors, the voices of the movies. Not everybody could do that, even in the heyday of radio in Hollywood. There were great movie actors that would kind of read the lines like this when they were doing their acting of the radio drama, which even though they were really good on film, it's a different art to read into a microphone with no, where your face is not giving any expression. You're basically only using your voice. The voice is the only thing that is telling the story, or voices. Sound effects, music on radio could do lots of different things. How much the more so if there's only one voice? If there's one person telling the story, whether, whether reading or from memory, it's a, it's a different art form. Those of us who were fans of audiobooks, for example, myself, we know this, you know, a, a bad reader can ruin a good book, at least for many people who are listening, uh, and vice versa. Sometimes a really good reader 
Even if they can't make the book good, they can make the experience good. They can make the experience of listening to the book good because they do a performance. Many different voices and, and, and different nuances to how they're saying, the, even with one, in one character. One character, they're doing this voice, whether they do a voice, a new voice for the character or just their own voice. There's different approaches to reading an audiobook. Some people barely disguise their book, their voice, and that's fine. But they still, in the way they're acting, many of the people who are audiobook readers are actors, professional actors. A lot of them, this is a gig they get when they can't get gigs in between, when they're not getting movies or, or TV shows. They'll do audiobooks because it's a gig, and you can get a lot of money sometimes, especially for a popular book. If you're an actor who is just a character actor on some shows, and you make whatever you make to do an episode of Law & Order or whatever, but... You get a you get an audiobook contract for a Stephen King book, that could be a half a million dollars or you know a hundred thousand dollars at least. That could be a really good, much better than you'd make doing a television show. Yes, you're not going to get as many of those, and it takes a long time to do. But still, that could pay. I mean, most of us could live on a hundred thousand dollars for a year, right? So if they get that a year, boom, a salary. So the idea of voice acting and bringing that into telling stories is very, very powerful. And so the telling of the story can change. And this is true both within a religious tradition and outside a religious tradition. Many people who are uh, spiritual leaders or teachers will tell stories from the tradition. Sometimes they'll read it from the holy books but sometimes they'll remember some of these stories and tell them. And then usually in those traditions, there becomes an oral tradition that's outside of the holy books. Fairy tale usually can mean either a story for children, like Wizard of Oz, or it can mean a folk story that comes out of people passing it down, sometimes not only from generation to generation, but also from culture to culture. In Europe, these folk tales went all around Europe and had different versions depending on where in Europe you were. My guess is it's probably exactly the same in India, that there are stories that are folk stories, fairy tale stories, that depending on what region of India, what culture you're in, because many people who are watching this may not know, that India has many languages even. Forget about cultures. I mean, there's not only dozens and dozens and hundreds of cultures, there's hundreds of languages in India. That, you know, the Hindi is now the, the official language, the most official of all of them, perhaps. But there are other places where that's not their main language they speak. Same with the stories. Same with stories. Stories about, let's say, the Monkey King, right? One of my favorite characters from your culture. You know, I love that character. So once that character has now become so mythic that it's that he's enshrined in a holy, whole huge holy book, books, really, uh, Mahabharata, etc., then you can make movies about him, you could have radio dramas about him, people can tell their kids stories about the Monkey King, and they don't have to necessarily remember every word. Speaking of storytelling, the uh, story of the Monkey King uh, is called Hanuman in India. Hanuman, I love Hanuman. I love his staff. I love his martial ability. I just that's, love him. Yeah, but that, that, that's the thing. Apparently, China also has their version of the Monkey King. Correct. Uh, it, tra it traveled has, to... Uh, uh, Go ahead. Right. I don't know much. Uh, I, I've only seen, I think, one movie 
uh, Journey to the West, something like that. Yes, I think that's the name. It sounds like it. So the thing that I was wondering is, uh, I mean, historically, I wonder if both of these cultures uh, came up with the story on their own or if it was taken through travelers. That's a really good question. And it was kind of where I was going with this, the larger arc of this particular episode. Now with Hanuman, to make it specific, I'm not a, I'm not a great scholar on this stuff, although I do like it and I have read it. I think, I, I, I'm sure there's people yelling at their videos right now that I'm wrong as I'm about to say this, but I think Hanuman was passed to China through the Buddhist tradition. Because although China didn't become Hindu, they did take on Buddhism quite a bit. Buddhism, many people around the world don't know it, especially younger people from various cultures that aren't, you know, culturally literate about this, don't know that Buddhism started in India. Even though it's now very huge in Thailand, where my girlfriend lives, and and in Japan, and in Vietnam, and and in China, the biggest place where it spread prior to communism, um, that was all came from India. The story goes that the Indian Buddha, this guy who was actually pushing back against the Hindu tradition, he, he or his, I forget if it was he or the second Buddha, his disciple, went to China. In fact, that's a folk story, a great one, by the way, of how Shaolin martial arts came to be. It's not true. It's not historic. It's now been debunked by almost every scholar. It doesn't matter. It still has truth because even though I shouldn't say it's not true, I should say it's not historic. And as I've talked about in previous episodes, there's a difference between history and truth. And as Stephen Pressfield, this guy I'm a big fan of now and his writing about art and about writing and about storytelling, fiction can sometimes be more true than so-called history. There's a saying in English, the truth is stranger than fiction. That may be that may be true, but sometimes fiction is truer than truth. There's some, this is like what the fable and the parable is. And uh, the story goes that I believe it was Shakyamuni Buddha, which I think is the second Buddha, not Siddhartha Buddha, but I think the second Buddha, which is Shakyamuni. He went up to China. He went to the Shaolin Temple, which was a Buddhist temple that had already, I think, was started perhaps by Siddhartha. I don't remember all the details. Anyway, when, when Shakyamuni Buddha comes to the Shaolin Temple, these guys couldn't even meditate. They were so out of shape. They were so, they, they, they just couldn't even neither stand because they're a standing meditation or sit to do sitting meditation. They couldn't stay awake. They couldn't keep their body in a good position. So he started to teach them things that were not specific to Buddhism actually had come, according to at least some versions of the story, from Indian yoga, from the yoga, the, the, the Hatha yoga tradition. But that tradition, according to some folk stories, comes from the martial traditions of India. Some of these movements, which now are just prayerful and beautiful and lotus looks up at the sun, some of them, according to at least some martial traditions, were originally blows or kicks or ways of defending yourself or holding a sword or holding a spear or holding a club. And so when he got to Shaolin Temple, he realized he needed to teach these guys some physical fitness. And so the originals, according to some, and this is not historically true, it's been debunked, but according to at least some versions of that story, 
he was teaching them Shaolin martial arts, which becomes what we now call Kung Fu, which in China is actually called Wushu, which means martial art. Kung Fu actually means developing the self, work on the self, Kung Fu. And it could, doesn't necessarily only mean martial. It could mean various ways of, of working on yourself, like, for example, yoga, uh, which isn't martial in most cases at all anymore. So um, I'm not sure about this, but I believe that that doesn't mean your question still doesn't stand. Because what if there was a fighting monkey in China that wasn't a god or a friend right. of the Buddha. Han Yuman is a friend in the Mahabharata. He's a friend, I think, of, of um, Rama. Rama, right? But I think he also becomes a friend of Buddha in Buddhist stories. But what monkeys exist all over the world? And monkeys are yeah. often good fighters. So if there, so there's no reason to think that there weren't fighting monkey stories that became mythic in these two separate cultures, one of which might have been sacred, the other one might have just been folk stories that then become sacred in China through the Buddhist tradition. There was a television series that I, I saw, my ex-wife and I watched, I forget if it was on, I think it was on Netflix, maybe Amazon Prime, that was really well done. I think it was an Indian show, and it was all about uh, Hanuman, um, or it had Indian, Indian actors in it anyway, and it was really good, and I enjoyed it. It's, it was sort of, you know, it was very... It was very PG rated or G rated. It was almost right. like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Hercules series with Kevin Sorbo, which was also big on American television, produced by Sam Raimi, who did the Spider-Man trilogy, the original Spider-Man trilogy. Anyway, it was sort of like that. The stories, even if there's a story, let's say a Monkey King story, that in Bombay is told one way, in a different part of India, in the Kashmir, in the Kashmir Valley, is going to be different. It's going to be told differently. Same thing with all stories. Muslim Sufi stories. Sufi, the, speaking of the Kashmir Valley, the the Sufis who, which is a mystical branch of Islam, they they're the ones who do the whirling dervishes. They're much more into music, actually playing of instrumental music. Uh, they have their own stories, Sufi stories, many of which I've heard. But some of those stories, I heard a Catholic priest, an Indian Catholic priest named Anthony DeMello, Father Anthony DeMello, I heard those stories from him, both on his recordings and in his books. So I guarantee the stories are going to be very different the way he tells them than it might be from a Sufi Muslim telling in the Kashmir Valley. Is this, by, by the time I heard Anthony DeMello telling him, he was either living in England or in America. He wasn't living in India anymore. He grew up Catholic, Catholic priest, Roman Catholic priest, great teacher, great storyteller. I used to use his stories all the time in sermons and as, as a storyteller. I loved his, and he collected stories from every culture, from Hinduism, from Islam, from obviously the Christian tradition, which is he coming from Jewish tradition. And he was a great storyteller, both orally and in writing. And, there are, and his books are wonderful, Father Anthony DeMello. I highly recommend them. They're sometimes very short, sometimes only a paragraph. It's really nice sometimes to have stories that you can tell in just a couple of minutes. And uh, here's, for example, here you, you want to give it, here's an example of a Sufi story that I heard, I think, originally before I heard it from Father Anthony, but also, may his memory be a blessing, may he rest in peace, but also from other people before him. So a very short story. So in every storytelling tradition, there's usually a fool. There's a fool. And the fool in storytelling tradition can also be the trickster. They sometimes go back and forth. 
They have these, they're in, in the in Native American Indian, American Indian culture, it's called the coyote. The coyote is a, is a trickster. Sometimes he's the fool, sometimes he plays other people for the fool. And that's a very important character. So in the Sufi tradition, there's this Sufi fool named Mula Nasruddin, very famous Sufi fool. And this, it's become a joke, but it's act, and it is funny, but there's meaning to these little jokes. So Mula Nasruddin is outside, he's, he's down on the ground, and he's looking for something on his hands and knees. And a friend of his comes by and says, Mula Nasruddin, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my my wallet. I can't find it. And he says, oh, I'll come, I'll help you. And they're looking for, they're looking, they're looking for hours. He says, you sure that you lost it here? And Mula says, I didn't lose it here. He says, why are we looking here? He says, oh, because the light is much better here than where I lost it. And that's both funny, but it also has a spiritual meaning. And that is a a, a short, very short story. Jokes sometimes are just things to make people laugh. But a lot of times, especially in the storytelling tradition of jokes, the jokes have a meaning to them beyond the laughter. It's just like with, with the fable, the parable, they are themselves parables and fables. The laughter opens people up to the deeper meaning of what the story is trying to tell. And many, even to this day, a lot of stand-up comics will say it's funny because it's true. So the, the truth of a joke sometimes is what makes that joke continue. Sometimes it's just the telling and the way it's done. Abbott and Costello, who have one of the greatest routines ever in the history of comedy, who's on first about this baseball team. And every, some people know it. If you haven't, look it up on YouTube. There's dozens of videos of it uh, where they did this thing. It's almost like a poem. I mean, I still laugh at it, even though I've heard it hundreds of times. It's still funny to me, because it, but it's not necessarily has any spiritual meaning, although I guess you could find spiritual meaning in almost anything. So those are some examples of fairy tales, folk tales, and, and, and storytelling tradition. So um, I think this idea of the monomyth, this idea of, of storytelling, uh, and the way it comes, and what your question is, how, how do these stories travel? Do they travel from teller to teller? I think in many cases that's what happens, especially with something like storytelling. You see this in music also where itinerant musicians travel from one place to another and then other musicians in that area learn from them pick up on their tricks on their on their on their riffs on their you know little little things that they do rhythms you know and rhythms get passed around eventually there can be standardized versions this is huge in your culture the hindu musical culture is probably second to none when it comes to rhythm. I know a lot of people hold up Africa. Africa has its own rhythmic tradition, but in India it's become like a science over of, over more than a thousand years of how to count it, how to, how to you know, what rhythms fit into where and, and all these different things. There isn't quite something like that in, in Africa. Africa has a very sophisticated rhythmic tradition, but it's much more purely a folk or oral tradition, even within a tribe or tribe to tribe. In India, there is two, there are two different traditions. There's the there's a northern West India tradition and the southern India tradition, but both of them have developed rhythm in a way that no other culture in the world quite has. In my humble opinion, and I studied this stuff. I studied santor, which is an Indian classical instrument. Now, as of 1968, it became an Indian classical instrument. That guy who 
created that, Shiv Kumar Sharma, he was a tabla player originally uh, when he was a kid, and his father had him develop the santor. But I learned from a, a tabla player. He was also a student of Shiv Kumar Sharma, and I learned how to count rhythms, how to sing the rhythms. There's a whole system of how to sing the rhythms. I mean, almost nobody does that in other cultures. We have in the West solfege, which is how to sing pitch and melody. But we don't have quite the same way to do it with I can't even do it. I learned a little bit of it, but it's very complex and very sophisticated. It really brings rhythm up to a scientific level. And I think it's the same thing with storytelling. We don't we can't trace all the storytelling journeys. But there's no question that what used to be called the Silk Route or the Spice Route, which goes through India from, you know, from various other countries, Europe, other places, and goes up into China and back down again, had storytellers on those journeys. And they shared their stories just like musicians did. Or people who were healers shared their herbal recipes. Or even just cooks, people who were cooks and, and made food, shared their different ways of cooking garlic, for example, or tofu, or using soybeans, right? All of this. So I think that storytelling is um, like with music, like with medicine, like with many other things. It's hard to trace where they came from. I think there is probably a little of both things where the idea comes simultaneously or separately from each other. And there's where the storytellers come together. By the way, one last thing before I, you want to say, I just want one more thing I want to say about this. Storytellers love telling and hearing other people's stories. When, uh, when, when I was a professional storyteller, we'd get around and tell each other stories. Comedians do the same thing to this day. They, it's not like, oh, it's all about me. It's all about me. I want to tell my jokes. A good comedian would not only likes to tell their jokes, but also likes to hear other people, sometimes to steal them, <laughs> and sometimes just to have the pleasure of laughing at someone else's humor. Same with storytelling. A good storyteller likes t hearing other people's stories and telling stories to other storytellers. They sit around a fire or sit around a desk or sit around whatever or a Zoom, <laughs> and they tell stories to each other. So I think that goes on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And I'm sure you'll agree the similarities between storytelling and cooking. Uh, you know, people make a dish their own. They put their own touch to it. You go throughout the region and you'll find different versions of the same dish. Yeah, yes. kind of similar to what you were Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. Many people who are cooks and chefs will say, well, cooking is an art, you know, and there are certainly very, very fine chefs throughout the world who are so meticulous about their particular recipe that if you borrow their recipe, they call it stealing. You know, in fact, yeah. I, there's, there's a mystery series, Nero Wolf, where he's a gourmet himself, and he himself is a gourmet cook. He hired, he has a gourmet cook who works for him, and one of the, one of the stories was all about these kind of competition between all these chefs. And one guy has a sausage re uh, recipe that he is not willing to give to anybody. Like somebody stole a version of it, but it's he it's blasphemy to him because it's not his. It's it, it he ruined it. So see, then it becomes also this is a great this is a great side discussion because is it tr more true with food than it is with something like an art form like a storytelling? Is it less so if somebody paints uh, Van Gogh's Starry Night and they do a really good version of it, but they have their own interpretation of it? But it's clear they're inspired by Van Gogh. Is that wrong? Is it right? You know, it becomes this whole discussion, especially when you're talking about art, 
But this, but is that more or less true with something like stories or music? And it's it's a question. It's not something that's easily answerable. Like right. Ravi Shankar is the most well known in the West of sitar players, but he's not the only one, and he's not even the most only famous one. He may be the most famous, but there are a lot plenty of sitar, and each one, even if they're playing the same raga. The same morning raga, whatever it is, because people, again, people in the West often don't know, ragas are specific times. There's, they, there's morning ragas, there's afternoon ragas, there's evening ragas. But even if 10 different sitar players or santor players or flute players play the same raga, it's not going to be the same. That's what makes music what it is. This is true with rock and roll, true with the blues. For those people who are more Western, you can take the blues as one of the best examples. How many thousands, tens of thousands of blues players have there been since it's become a popular form of music? It's only three chords usually. The one chord, the four chord, and the five chord, back to the one chord. But it's been played by so many different people. Each one makes it their own flavor, brings their own spices, their own cumin, their own curry, their own garlic and onion while they mix up the blues. It's very, Louisiana blues is very different than Chicago blues. The urban blues of Chicago is very different than the rural blues of the South in America. Very different. And there's different flavors. There's some things they have in common and they'll share with each other. So you get different, you get things that are combined. It, uh... It kind of uh, makes me rem- think of pizza, you know, when you said Chicago. Oh, yes. And, uh, and, a a and, great and, example. And, and the way you're describing all the different uh, versions of the same thing. Yeah, for a long time, Chicago pizza, nobody even knew about it. I didn't know about it. I went to visit my dad after my parents got divorced. I went up to Chicago to see my dad. He wasn't yet remarried. And I went and I had Chicago Pizza, which had became a, a, a chain called Pizzeria Uno. P, uh, they became a chain. But in, when I went to visit my dad, there was only the ones in Chicago. It hadn't spread to New York and L.A. and all these places. So this thick crusted pizza that was more like um, just like you have different breads in India. Right. So right. W- w- a thicker bread as opposed to a thinner bread, a bread more like naan was more like the pizza that they were making in Chicago, like a thick naan. And and so, uh, and I never tasted it before. It was very different, different sauce also. The crust was different. Getting hungry just talking about it. Um, and, uh, and so, but it's the same way with things like the blues. And it's the same right. way with storytelling. If I tell the story, the, the story I just told, Mula Nasruddin. If you hear 10 different people tell that story, it's going to be somewhat different depending on how they're doing it, unless they're reading it, all reading it from the same text. And even then, they may emphasize different voices, different sounds, different things. So this idea of the pool of storytelling, uh, there are, just like it happens with inventions, for example, radio. Radio was invented, really it was discovered, because radio waves exist. It's a real thing in, 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 in nature. But it was discovered by three people simultaneously. Marconi in Italy usually gets the biggest credit for it, but there were other two other, at least two other people who came up with radio at the same time, which relates to your question. If something's out there in what they used to call the ether, when radio first came out, they used to think there was this thing called ether, energy that was in the air it wasn't it's not really like that but that's what they thought when radio was first discovered and then invented into a machine that could pick up these radio waves and be and transmit and receive so but this happens with storytelling 
There's no question that your question relates to certain storytelling traditions. There are storytelling traditions. It's just like with language. The word mama and various permutations of that sound is, is universal in many cultures. In Hebrew, it's ima, mama in certain many cultures, or ma, or in ma, the, even the English word mother has a sound like that. So my dad, who was a kind of a, a amateur uh, scholar of language, he loved to figure out like where language came from, and he would read books about it, was always fascinated, like how did certain words appear in other in cultures that were not reachable they couldn't get to each other because of oceans and continents even and the, the, sometimes people say well there was continental drift and maybe these cultures were originally in one place but we don't know all of that but certainly there seems to be certain ideas like the idea this was this goes back to joseph campbell's monomyth this idea of a hero who gets a call to do a mission refuses the call maybe more than once, like Moses in Exodus, says, keeps arguing with God, look, I can't do this, I have a speech impediment, I don't know the language, I don't know what to tell Pharaoh, I don't know how to say this, and the, the, he keeps getting this call to do the mission, then often there's a mentor figure or some kind of guide who, who picks it up, Obi-Wan Kenobi, like we talked about in last episode in Star Wars, who then helps the hero in this journey. They have to face a lot of perils and and then often there's a there's a moment where there it's a it looks like they're going to die like there's no way that they can win against this empire strikes back end of the movie luke gets his hand cut off his now he knows it's his father is going to kill him and there's this this peril and even if the even though he doesn't die there's a lot of risk he he's lost a hand his best friend or his friend Han Solo has now been imprisoned in a block of some kind of stone or ice, car, you know, some kind of carbonite. So this, this, these tropes seem to show up no matter whether it's a, a character with a sword or with a gun or with a bow. And so... It could be similar to the pyramids that we see all over the world. I yeah. mean, that's the, that, that is the perfect way to make a structure which is tall and stable. So yes. So you see pyramids all over the world. Yes. And even though the cultures had no connection with each other, still they may come up with the same structure. Yeah. And that's so, yeah, partially Joseph Campbell's point. His teaching about the monomyth, the hero with a thousand faces, is basically this is a pyramid of story. This so, is it's uh, very stable, it's very strong, and it can then be passed from culture to culture and has a meaning that is beyond that particular culture. Let, let let me ask you this: Have you felt that the the uh, monomyth has kind of uh, turned a lot of stories uh, in, uh, let's say, Hollywood, for example, kind of monotonous? Yeah, I think we mentioned it briefly last week, but let's bring it up again. And and Pressfield talks about it in one of his books that once Star Wars came out, and people started, and then I think even more when Indiana Jones came out, and then even more when, when Mad Max movies became big, uh, especially when Road Warrior, which was the second and arguably, in my humble opinion, still the best of the entire Road Warrior quadrology. There's actually four of them now. I think there's going to be a fifth one coming out soon this year or next year. And I still love the second one, Road Warrior. With the, the first three all were Mel Gibson. And were basically retellings 
of the same story. More than Star Wars, more than Indiana Jones, although Indiana Jones is a little bit closer to the Mad Max version, Mad Max is not... You can read the Mad Max or watch them as chronological order. The first one, Mad Max, is before the world goes to complete hell in a handbasket. There's still some law around. That's what Mad Max is. He's a cop. The second one is after some kind of nuclear holocaust or something. So now there's almost nothing left to the original civilized world. And the third one comes after that. That is a way to read it. But there's another way to read those. And George Miller himself, who directed and wrote those movies, says I, he tends towards this. They're all retellings of the same story, taking place in different worlds with the same central character. And you see this a lot. So when those movies became huge and people started to f know about Joseph Campbell and he became a superstar in his own right, George Lucas basically adopted him as his mentor father figure and put him on Skywalker Ranch. That's where he lived out the rest of his life. He lived on Skywalker Ranch. And, and so what happened in Hollywood, and, and Pressfield, I'm about 90% sure, talks about this in one of his books, and it, but there's other people have talked about it too. What started to happen in Hollywood, for good and or for bad, and you can look at it both ways, everything has ups and downs, just like we were talking about before with public domain versus copyright. People started going, producers, these executives, what we call the suits, the people who weren't very creative, who weren't really great storytellers, would say to a writer or a producer or a director, one of the guys who were coming in to, to be the creative parts of the movie, they would say, okay, what's the monomyth here? I, I hear you got this hero. Where's his refusal of the call? <laughs> Where is the mentor? Who's the mentor in this story? In other words, they started trying to fit this into a cookie cutter, very much apropos of your question. Now, and I think that is a problem. There's no question. It was also a strength. It was a feature and a bug because then you could have this idea of a storytelling tradition. I think Joseph Campbell, and I love him and I, I love his thing, I think he oversimplifies the idea of story, the power of story and storytelling. And sometimes sands off the rough edges between one story and another so that they look the same or more the same. I don't buy completely his thesis of a hero with a thousand faces. I think he, he knows more about it than I will ever know. He forgot more in his old age than I'll ever know about storytelling and the storytelling tradition. But I still think, in my humble opinion, as a storyteller, somebody who has read a lot, not quite the professor or scholar that he was. I mean, the guy was a professor of this stuff. I think what a lot of people do, especially in academia, having been in academia myself for over 10 years, that a lot of times you're selling a thesis. You don't always know you're doing it. Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not. But I know for sure I did it as an undergrad. I was writing a, a paper, a five-page paper, and I would sand off the rough edges so that I would get an A on the paper. I wasn't cheating, I wasn't lying, but I would just try to make it more to sell the thesis. You're making an argument. That's what a thesis is. So, similar to what people do in debate teams where you take a side, doesn't matter what side, flip a coin. I'll take pro-life, okay, I guess I get pro-choice, and we're, we're going to make a debate, and you have these debate teams, and they argue these two sides, and they try to come up with the best arguments for the argument that they're doing, even if they don't believe it. That's debate, right? So that's very similar, I think, to some extent. I'm not saying that's what he did all overall, but to some extent, that was Joseph Campbell's. That was his brand. 
he became the guy of the hero with a thousand faces, the hero's journey, as it's called, right? And he, and there's a lot of value in it. There's spiritual value in it for each individual. Everybody can can own the hero's journey. Pressfield wrote a book called The Artist's Journey. There's another book called The Writer's Journey by somebody else. I forgot that, that author's name. All based on Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, and they give credit to that, where the writer, the artist, is the one who has to be, get the call to do their art, refuses the call. That's This is a big part of Pressfield's whole teaching from the War of Art all the way to his recent memoir, which is called Government Cheese, which is my favorite of the books that he's written so far of this nonfiction teaching people about art and creativity. Because it's his story. It's his journey. It's a seven hour on audio, seven hour version of, you know, how he came to finally write a book, a novel that became a bestseller. And he was 51 years old at that point. And he, and he says that, he emphasizes that a lot at the end of the book. He says, for those of you who say I'm too old, that's just another form of resistance. That's just another form of resistance. I wrote my first novel at when I was 51 or 53, I think he might have been. And, uh, and he's in his 70s now. So, you know, that was already almost 20 years ago. And that's a good way to end, I think, for today. And I really enjoyed this discussion about story. And we'll continue more. So, excellent. Yeah. So, thank you all for joining us into, out of, and all around story, storytelling, myth, legend, and roads adjacent. If you like this, please give it a like. If you don't like it, let us know that. Any comments you want to give, any questions, requests, please put that in the comment section and give us a follow also. I want to thank Rudra for co-hosting this and for all the behind-the-scenes work he does. Thanks, Rudra. See you all, or listen to you all, or talk to you all next time. Bye for now.